Welcome to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst for MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. We will soon enough in the show be joined by our friend Jesse Sanchez, who is an MLB.com national reporter. He's going to talk about a pretty fun draft we just did. We drafted the 25 players under 25 years old. So that's young superstars like Juan Soto and Fernando Tatis and Ronald Acuna, and also prospects who haven't quite made their mark in the big leagues yet. So he's going to join us. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, before we get to Jesse, let's talk about some topics. We're going to talk about what the state of analytics are in baseball. Garrett Cole had some interesting comments. We're going to talk about a couple of Vanderbilt pitchers, Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter, who will be very high draft picks. Joey Votto loves the barrels. And Blake Snell said something about game six last year that I thought was just so fascinating. Um, I couldn't get past it. But first, Matt, hi. Um, we are going to have a lot of talk about everything in baseball this year. I mean, a lot of it, there's definitely a part of me that is frustrated that as spring training gets going, like the last thing that the baseball world seems to be talking about is the field is the play on the field. And listen, a lot of that's self-inflicted. We just saw what the former CEO of the Mariners said and all those horrible statements that uh, really shined a light on some pretty disappointing parts of the game. And I think in some sense, it's good that we're talking about these things because we all know there are things that could be improved about baseball. And it's interesting to me, and, and I know you as well, that some of the uh, the conversation has turned to analytics. And I mean, that's a word I just hate. I actually hate when I hear people use the word analytics because it means like 74 different things like, you know, the, the data revolution, um, you know, Bill James, StatCast, whatever you want to think about. A lot of good things have come from that. Maybe some regrettable things have come from that. But what I think is going to happen is that word is just going to be a catch-all for like everything. And it's it doesn't work that way. Like there's there's so many good and bad and indifferent. There's like 25 different things that people will just use this word for over the next like year. And I'm just I'm mostly not looking forward to this. <laughs> The topic of analytics seemed to really take hold of baseball Twitter on Tuesday when um, some some star players were doing their inter- introductory press conferences in spring training, uh, notably Garrett Cole and I think also Francisco Lindor, um, who were kind of giving their State of the Union on baseball and talked a little bit about, quote unquote, analytics. And, you know, Lindor talked a little bit how he thinks that, you know, analytics might be taking some of the fun out of the game. Um, and Cole's talked at length about how analytics have affected labor and contract negotiations. And, you know, Cole, he, it is, when he signed with the Yankees, he talked, he, he thanked um, Kurt Flood and Marvin Miller. So he is someone who is a student of the history of, um, of the game and labor negotiations. And I don't, th- I think that both of their points had some merit. And I think that like, for example, with Lindor, you know, I think, you know, Theo, Theo Epstein was hired by major league baseball in part to basically say like, okay, what can we do to improve the watchability of the game on the field? Because yes, there is some belief that because of teams have, you know, sort of cracked the code on strikeouts and home runs and shifting that maybe there are fewer balls in play and the game is aesthetically um, less enjoyable than maybe it once was. So I think there's, there's merit to what Lindor was saying. And, you know, Cole was kind of piggybacking on the controversy surrounding the uh, aforementioned uh, comments by Kevin Mather, the now former Mariner CEO who basically admitted to some type of, uh, I don't know if service time manipulation is the right way to phrase it, but that he sort of openly admitted the way teams have sort of been looking at um, uh, how they uh, promote players to the big leagues and the, the controversy around that. The problem is that like, 
it's so frustrating that I think that, that, that analytics has become like, you know, terms like analytics and launch angle have become like these cudgels that they get used in a negative connotation when there's really so much more to it than that. And I think for those of us like you and me, Mike, who have been deep into this conversation for years, it's it can just get kind of exhausting. Did you see someone asked Juan Soto if he cared about his his launch angle yesterday? I don't even know what reporter it was. I just saw it come out of like the National Scrum, and he like and he says no, and I'm like, yeah, of, of course. Why? Why would if you have like the perfect swing, why on earth should he need to care about what his launch angle is? But, but like, here's the thing, and like I saw that question too. It's like, but he does care about it. He just doesn't care about it in those terms. Like if he's popping right. the ball up, he cares. Like Tony Gwynn didn't quote unquote care about launch angle the term, but Tony Gwynn cared whether or not he was like popping the ball up or not hitting line drives. Like it's just a different phrase, but it's like become this again. This is like one of those things. These like these like it's like it's like cancel culture in political discourse. Where like it's become this term <laughs> that like is, is this, you know. But it's like in because people when people throw it out there, it loses all the nuance. And so instead of actually talking about you know discrimination and who gets a voice, it's just become this like buzzword of like, oh, cancel culture is bad. When it's like, well, no, there's so much more to it than that. Right. And I think that's that's my frustration with with this yeah. conversation around around analytics. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you totally. I mean, listen, there there are things that we have learned that can and should be improved, right? Like have have analytics been turned into like I don't know. Have they been used for nefarious purposes? Probably. Do teams act like hedge funds too much? Probably. As you as you referenced, like have some of these uh, things maybe uh, taken some of the excitement and life out of the field, like in the hunt for efficiency. Sure, but we're never going back to 1985 thinking. Like we're never going to go back to let's sacrifice bunt and and put the ball on the ground and win with stolen bases. I mean. You know, as, as you mentioned, Garrett Cole is pretty open about the fact uh, he's one of the most famous examples, I would think, of using data to improve himself and get better. Like we've talked about this endlessly for years, right? Like J.D. Martinez and Daniel Murphy and you know, everybody knows the names. I did get a kick at, like, as he was giving these comments. I was paying attention to Mets Twitter and they were talking to Taiwan Walker, who they just signed. And he literally said, oh, I signed here because in part because you guys got this great technology. I can't wait to use it. <laughs> you know, like like players should use stuff to get better and get paid and they have. Um, teams should use it to build better ball clubs. And I think they have. Like I know a big problem for a lot of people is that free agency isn't what it once was. And I would say it's very bad for baseball that every winter that's the conversation and next winter is going to be even worse. But I also think I don't necessarily have a problem with the idea that teams have figured out, hey, uh, this 22-year-old I think is probably going to be as as decent of a bet as the guy who's 34 and I don't have to pay him as much. Like That's common sense in some point. Now, I'm not saying that that means we have to stay in stasis forever. I do think you know, as the collective bargaining agreement comes up, there are a lot of things that that could and should be done to to change, and I think it's maybe uh, it's the right answer here is not to try to undo a lot of the advancements we've made because that's just not going to happen. Um, try to react to them to, to understand how the game has changed for good and for bad. What can we do to turn it into the game we like? Understanding like again, we're not just going to be back in 1985 and thinking like the way we used to. It's and, and exactly. My final thought on that also is I think that sometimes we underestimate um, how like amazing the athletes on the field are. That like yes, they're because of strikeouts. You know, the ball's in play less than it was you know twenty years ago. That's true. But I also think that there is there there are players that we see now. There are way more guys who are have these like who are you know 
sort of like magicians, your Fernando Tatis Juniors, your Javier Baez is like, there are these, there, there's uh, Mike Trout, obviously, in terms of speed and strength and skill of the players on the field right now, it's mind blowing. And I think we lose sight of that way too much when we talk about how analytics has taken, taken the fun of the game. No, analytics has also led us to like, you know, players who can do these things and pitchers who can, you know, throw these Bugs Bunny changeups and can throw 101, mi- 101 miles an hour. So like there is, these things are all related. Like that didn't happen. That didn't happen by accident. That happened because of advanced training methods and teams trying to identify players with broad sets of skills and not just trying to focus on, you know, the, the early days of quote unquote analytics was, oh, let's just get guys who can draw walks. Right. And like, so you ended up with a lot more of like the, the beer league softball team kind of like motif, but we're way past that. We are now like dynamic athletes all over the field and maybe the ball is in play less, but when it's not in play, it's because pitchers are doing incredible things. And when it is in play, the players on the field are doing things we've never seen before. I agree with that. I did see a former major league third baseman tweet yesterday that analytics were invented just to keep salaries down. It's like, come on. I I don't argue that there's some of that happening today, but when people like Bill James and Pete Palmer and friends started thinking about this, it was because, hey, um, let's stop saying the best pitchers are the guys with the most wins. <laughs> you know, like let's stop saying the best hitter has the best batting average. Like we we have learned there are different ways to to value players. I mean, we're gonna talk in a second about Joey Votto. Joey Votto is on a huge contract, and it's in part because he gets on base. It's on base percentage. Like it's it's a con it's a complicated thing. I want to just finish um, by quoting here from Lindsay Adler from The Athletic, who spoke to Garrett Cole, and she tweeted out a, a bit that didn't make it into her article. And I quote here: Often the analytics boogeyman narrative is a conflation of a number of different ways information has been valued and applied in baseball. And I think that's perfect, right? It's all information. Some of it makes players better. Some of it makes teams better. And some of it is uh, a little, it's not great for the entertainment value. And I get it. And it's just going to be a long year if this is how things are going to go. All right, let's move on to our three batter minimum before we bring on Jesse Sanchez. The first thing, this may be the first time on the show we've really talked about college baseball. Um, but I think, you know, you brought this up uh, offline before, and I think it's a good time to do it. So Vanderbilt, uh, they just started their season and they have two of the best pitchers in all of college baseball, potentially the top two picks in the draft. I don't follow the draft like that closely, so I don't know if they will actually go one, two, Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter. Um, They both made their debuts the other day. Unsurprisingly, they both looked amazing. They both have uh, athletic heritage in their family. So Kumar Rocker is a junior. He just turned 21. His dad, Trent, is the defensive line coach for the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, Played in the NFL. Actually made the all-rookie team for Washington back in 1990. And Jack Leiter, that's a very famous baseball name. His dad was Al. His uncle was Mark. His cousin pitched in the big leagues. Um, And now that I'm thinking about it, when we talk to Jesse, we're going to talk about Fernando Tatis Jr. and Ronald Acuna Jr. And I think I'm going to call my dad and yell at him for not being like an all-world athlete and dooming me to not be able to play in pro baseball. <laughs> I, I, I mean, the the reason I want to talk about these guys, and actually it kind of it does dovetail with our conversation about analytics a little bit, is you watch them pitch and they look like big leaguers on the mat. Like they're, st- I mean, they're throwing 99 with hammer curveballs with like very fluid deliveries. They know exactly what they're doing. And it speaks to the level of like preparation and coaching and development that's going on right now before guys even get to pro ball. Like I'll give you an example. So this week, the, um, the blue Jays are unva- unveiling a new, um, 
like a training center in Dunedin, their complex in Dunedin. Um, and it's like, it's state of the art and it's, um, it arguably, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think maybe may like the, the best new facility in baseball. Right. And our own Alexis Bernicki did a story about this, um, which you'll see on the site in the next day or two. And in it, she talks about how basically to figure out what they wanted to do with their facility, they went to the alma mater of uh, their uh, GM, Ross Atkins, Wake Forest, and the alma mater of, uh, I believe it's their bullpen coach, um, Vanderbilt. So basically, we've got MLB teams going to college teams and basically saying, like, show us what you do, and we're going to bring that to the major leagues. And I think it's really interesting because you look at a guy like Jack Leiter, right, who was who was drafted. He was like a first-round pick or a supplemental first-round pick, and he did not sign. And he probably could have made, you know, seven figures out of high school and gone right into pro ball and been on the fast, you know, semi-fast track to the major leagues. And he went to college. Obviously, the pandemic screwed things up a little bit. But when you see him on the mound, you sort of understand, like, what the training that these guys are getting in college baseball right now is – arguably in some ways better than what they'd be getting in the minors. And so we have these pitchers right now who, I mean, I, I don't know if they can go right to the big leagues, but it doesn't look like it's going to take them very long after they get drafted. Yeah. And I think what we've learned over the last couple of years, um, specifically with Vanderbilt, because I think Vanderbilt is regarded as, you know, if not the most advanced college program, at least, you know, up there is that college programs have really been ahead of the curve um, as you said, ahead of minor league teams in, in a lot of this advanced stuff to the point that now you're seeing big league teams go in and just hire the college coaches, right? Like the twins massively improved their pitching staff. And part of it is because they hired Wes Johnson, who was the pitching coach uh, at Arkansas. Um, Derek Johnson, who was the coach, Vanderbilt pitching coach, got hired with the Reds and with the Brewers before that. Uh, the Tigers hired Chris Fetter out of Michigan. Like you're starting to see where are the pro team is going to find coaches. And a lot of times they're going to college, like more so than they ever really had done before. And I, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's baseball is so different than the other sports. You know, like you could watch a, a Duke UNC basketball game and think, oh yeah, this is basically a pro game, right? Like those guys could play in the NBA right now. And baseball's never really been like that. It's like, okay, you have to go to the minors, you have to spend your three, four, five, six years, whatever. And I mean, that's still true. It's not like guys aren't going to go pitch in the minor leagues first, but I think it's really interesting um, because it does seem like these guys are more prepared than ever and they're younger and they're they're familiar with, you know, they grew up with iPhones. Like I didn't grow up with an iPhone. You didn't either. We're old, right? But I grew up with an 8-bit Nintendo system. Um, they're used to it and they're ready. And I do think it's helping them transition into the majors um, more and more quickly. And, and we're seeing that with like the youth in the game. What, one more thing before we transition to our next topic, I want to mention just like I remember when Steven Strasburg was in college. That's like the last time I can remember a a uh, college prospect where it was like, wow, this guy is like this. You know, this guy's basically a big leaguer right now. You know, if you can watch him, watch him. And like I, I actually I, I got to ESPN Plus too late to watch Vanderbilt the other day. I didn't get to see the. I saw some of the tweets of Rocker and Lighter pitching. Um, but that's how it kind of feels to me right now. It's like they, that's that kind of, um, you know, I don't know exactly what the scouting community says, but that's what it feels like to me watching these guys. I'm like, wow, these guys are real deal. Um, if you're pitching, if your team picks at the top of the draft, you will be excited to have them. Um, for context, before we move on, MLB Pipeline's uh, rankings of draft prospects for this year's draft, Kumar Rocker is number one. Uh, Jack Leiter is number six. As of now, I think these, these rankings were done 
I think in December. So they might change by the time they update them in the next in the next month or two. All right, let's move on to uh, item number two, Joey Joey Votto, which like I think you have to love Joey Votto. How can you not? He made some comments that seemed uh, specifically directed towards us, <laughs> and I have to read them. Uh, he, he gave these to a, a, I think on a Zoom, so a variety of Reds beat writers, but I've got this from our Mark Sheldon, who's our Reds.com beat writer. This is Votto. I spent a lot of time on that baseball savant page. There's a couple of statistics that all the good hitters are a part of. It's usually barrels and exit velocity, hard hit percentage, but especially barrels. The most important hitters are usually in that barrels category, barrels percentage, barrels per plate appearance category. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, who do I know that came up with the idea to call this particular brand of batted balls a barrel? Is it, I don't know, someone I've hosted a podcast with for the next couple? I think it was. It was you. You came up with the idea to name this uh, perfect combination of launch angle and exit velocity barrel. And now we've got Joey Barrow, Joey Votto saying this one, two, three, four, five times in three sentences. <laughs> so congratulations. I, I think naming barrels might end up being my like number one career accomplishment. And it warms, <laughs> it warms my heart to see um, Joey Votto uh, talking about it. Um, so, so glowingly. And so, uh, so yeah, that's, it's, it's cool to see. And, you know, he's always been sort of one of the more, analytical players. So I guess I'm, I shouldn't be surprised. Unfortunately, Votto, um, as he's gotten older, has really not been able to hit barrels with the frequency that he did in his uh, in his younger years. Well, that's partially true. Uh, it would look, if you just look at his surface level year last year, that he didn't have a great year. You know, he had only 226, a 354 on base and a 446 slugging. So uh, it was a 110 OPS plus, right? So 10% better than league average, which for him is pretty disappointing. But he did have his highest barrel rate in the last three years. Um, he, he bounced it back up. And what's fascinating is if you break apart his season, right? So again, it was a short 60-game season, but roughly halfway or so, he was benched because on August 25th, he was hitting 191 with a 321 on base and a 326 slugging. That's a bad 647 OPS uh, number. And I remember, I think I wrote about this at the time, he was he was not striking out like at all. He went his first eleven games with one strikeout. I think I looked it up and it was like a borderline called strike three. And I know that I trust Joey Votto more than I trust technology or umpires, so I'm going to say it wasn't actually a strikeout, right? And he gets benched, and it comes back on August 29th, and through the end of the season, almost doubles his strikeout rate from 13 percent to 25 percent. But he crushed the ball. 385 on base, 557 slugging, a 941 OPS. And he kind of has said in so many words is, look, I'm going to strike out more because it's going to allow me to do more damage. Now, I imagine when Mark Sheldon tweeted uh, that quote, that was a paraphrased quote. He didn't actually say that, that a lot of baseball fans were like really upset by that. They're like, no, no strikeouts, put the ball in play, make contact. I'm like, yeah. Um, but there's no badge of honor for grounding out the second base. I'll take the strikeouts if you're going to slug 557. And for a Reds team that had a really, truly disappointing offense last year, they, they need this guy. I'll take the strikeouts, crush the ball. <laughs> like, how could you not? Yeah, I think, I think you know, in that, the, the sort of, in the wide open NL Central, the Reds are certainly a dark horse at this point. Um, they're probably, you know, like fourth in, in projections, but, you know, given that it might only take 85 wins to win that division, if you, they get that version of Joey Votto that we saw from August 29th through the end of the season, okay, like then they maybe actually can be in the conversation. Uh, just real quick on Votto, recently I looked at who, who, which players in 2021 might be like the most likely to make the Hall of Fame, right? And there's some guaranteed slam dunks like Trout and Pujols and, and Kershaw, right? And I, I kind of put 
Votto in like this middle category of like he's going to have a really good case, but I don't, I don't think he's a slam dunk. And then I looked into it a little more. So he's got a career on base of 419 and a career slugging of 517. And I don't have the full list in front of me, but to have like a career on base over 400 and a career slugging over 500, it's only been happened like 35 times. And unless you are not yet eligible or you've done something like truly terrible off the field, you get into the Hall of Fame. And I think I've completely sold myself on the fact that aside from just being a seemingly great dude, Joey Votto should be in the Hall of Fame. Are you with me on this? Um, well, the, the 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 one thing I'll mention is that just the fact that he's, I don't know how many more years he's going to play, but like it's possible the slugging could fall behind, depending on how the next couple of seasons go, it's possible the slugging could fall below mm. 500. Um, <laughs> but... Um, you know, there's a good chance you and I will be able to vote for Joey, Joey, Joey Votto when he is on the ballot. That um, I actually I look forward to that. Here is our our third item. You may have heard that Blake Snell had a bit of a controversial moment in Game Six of the World Series last year, where Kevin Cash lifted him despite the fact that he was, and I quote here, dealing, um, and blew the game. And Nick Anderson came in, didn't go well. The Dodgers won the World Series, and the Rays did not. I we had talked about this a lot at the time, and I think we agreed that. My issue was less that he got pulled when he did. It was probably too early, but only like by a batter or two. And more that Kevin Cash brought in Nick Anderson, who had been just terrible for the entire month, right? I don't really want to like relitigate that whole decision now. But Blake Snell, who obviously has been traded to the Padres, he wrote about this whole incident in the Players' Tribune. And this is a little old now. I think it came out like right after we recorded last week, but it was so interesting. I did want to talk about it. So he goes through... You know, the, the disappointment and how his dad was crushed. And I get it. It's like your game six of the World Series, throwing the game of your life and you get lifted. I get it. And he was careful not to trash his manager because they've been pretty successful. But here's the part that he said that I hadn't thought about. I, I thought this was kind of fascinating. Um, he said he, see, he goes out and he sees Nick Anderson warming up in the bullpen. And so these are Snell's words. In a split second, that's all I'm thinking about. I can't help it. I'm no longer thinking about how I'm going to start off AJ Pollock or what I know Mookie will be looking for when he comes up. None of that. Now I'm thinking about how I'm about to get pulled. And instead of thinking, <laughs> instead of thinking, you know, these dudes cannot touch me. Now I'm thinking, please don't get a hit after off of me because I'm going to get yanked. And it wrecked my entire rhythm. And that's kind of fascinating because I'm trying to think back to that moment. You know, Snell had never really gone through the lineup like three times or pitched more than six innings in like an entire year. And it's, it's even though I don't think cash did the right thing to not even have a guy warm, seems like that would have been a disaster. And now it seems like warming the guy led to the disaster. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's circular here. I mean, cash, you have to have a guy up, right? You don't have to bring him in. You have to have a guy warming in the sixth inning of game six, right? Like, but is that, is that worth it here? I'm, it, it, it adds a whole new angle, I think, to this conversation. It does. And it also makes like, this is like, this is definitely one of those like gray areas of just like intangibles and how they like, is it different if, you know, Kevin Cash goes, goes up to Snell in the third inning when he's still cruising. It's like, Hey, listen, starting in the, after the fourth, I'm going to, I'm going to get someone up just so like, we're ready. Like, I trust you. I'm going to ride you till, you know, you're not, you're not, you're, you know, like I'm gonna ride you as long as I can, but like, just in case I'm gonna have some ready, like that's like that's part of it that I think I, I I wonder about, and that's one of those things that's kind of unknowable and could affect the psychology element of it. But you know we're getting, we're getting getting into the little weeds there of player psychology, but I think it's a really interesting question of like how you communicate that and how you, what you do to try and keep your 
your player's confidence up. The flip side is, you know, a lot of pitchers don't want to be talked to in between innings. So you want to leave them alone. And he might, Cash might think, well, if I go talk to him and tell him this, that's going to screw up his confidence. So there's not really a right answer, but it's just, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. I never, I never really thought about it like that. So it was, it's cool to see Snell um, speak so candidly about it. Is there a strategic advantage to be had? Now, let's say you got to get Nick Anderson warm, but you don't want Blake Snell seeing it, right? So, I mean, I guess you could say, hey, go throw in the tunnel, but that's not really off the mound. Should teams, should home teams hide their own bullpens? I mean, we, we've seen it Wrigley Field. Like they moved the bullpens off the sidelines and now they're, you know, kind of covered. I don't think you can see them from, from the game mound. Um, but I think, I'm not sure. I think it's for both home and visitor. Should they do it just for the home teams and force road teams to have visible bullpens? Is that is that the next advantage here? It's actually a good question. Now I'm wondering, like, what's like, what is the reason why there need to be visible bullpens, right? Like, teams have batting cages below the, um, like, you know, next to their clubhouses. Like, as long as you like had a camera so the other team could see who was warming up, which I think would be like, you know, a reasonable thing to do. Like, is there a reason it needs to be out in the open in the public? It's just I feel like it's one of those things that's always been, and like. I don't really know the answer. Well, my, my question is less about that and more about if there's a rule that requires both both sides to have it equally. Like if you could just do it for home and not road. You know, I don't actually know the answer to that. My guess is not, but I wonder why they can't both be covered. Now we're really getting, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're going nuts. <laughs> it is the first week of spring training. We haven't seen any games yet. Let's think deep thoughts. We're going to take a quick break and we will be back with Jesse Sanchez to talk about the top 25 players under the age of 25. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. And as we are looking ahead to the season, one of the more fun things to do is to just take a look at all of the, the overwhelming young talent in baseball. And, you know, we've written some articles about this and a lot of people have done research in the past that a larger share of plate appearances and innings and wins above replacement are coming from players younger and younger. And sure, there's a financial component to that. But I also just think that there's there's never been as much young talent as we have in the game as we do right now. So to that end, one fun thing we did this week, and this will be in an article that'll be up on MLB.com pretty soon, is we got a bunch of writers together, myself included, 
and we did a draft. We each picked five players to under 25 years old. So we got to 25 players under 25. And it was cool. Minor leaguers, uh, young major leaguers. So the uh, those of us who participated, myself and Sarah Langs, who's been a regular on the show, MLB Pipeline prospect experts, Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, and national reporter, Jesse Sanchez. And Jesse is here with us. And not only am I happy to have Jesse because uh, he knows what he's talking about, but just because we love Jesse. Jesse is one of the kindest people I've ever met in baseball, I think. Jesse, hi. How are you? How's everything? Hey, hey how are you? I'm great. Thank you for uh, allowing me to come on here. This is a been looking forward to this. Oh, that's that's great. So listen, we did this draft and um, it was a lot of fun. I, I'm not a prospect expert. Like I will lay that out right away. You know, I read the lists. I read the work that that you do and, and Jim and Jonathan do, and other sites and fan graphs and all that. Um, but I'm, I'm not on the ground. I'm not watching these guys really. So I I had a, a bit of a hard time, I think, just trying to decide between the guys who have proven something already and these like seemingly far off guys. You know, some of them are 17, 18 19 years old. Um, how did how did you approach that? Because you've seen some of these guys, a lot of them, a lot more in person than I certainly have. You know, the first thing I did, you know, you think about the big stars, you think about the talent. And the first names that come to mind were Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis, Ronald Acuna. And then I started thinking about, wow, I've known these guys since they were like 14 or 15 years old. <laughs> and I'm like, who else do I know that's 14 or 15 is a star? Hey, there's Wander Franco. He's a big He's going to be somebody. Luis Robert, he's a little bit older. He's probably 18 or 19 when I met these guys. So I just kind of went back to my personal Rolodex. And, and I also started looking at the, you know, the young talent everybody knows and sees out there. And, and what I see and what I think everybody's seeing is just the importance and the influence of the international prospect on lists like this. I mean, this thing was so much fun. And it was really cool to go back and, and compare these guys to each other. And personally, it was cool for me to just reminisce on on when the first time I saw these guys and and just some of, of the funny stories that that come to mind when I think of Elo Jimenez or, you know, Ronald Laguna and Devers and everybody that make up this list. Yeah, that's actually what jumped out to me is that the um, the top eight players and we'll, we'll go through the list in a second or at least we'll go through. I think we should at least go through the top of the list. Um, the top eight players selected in this um in this draft are all in, international signees. So I think that sort of speaks to what you're, you're talking about, Jesse, is that like, and that kind of blew me away, right? Um, that like the international, it's not just young talent, it's also young international talent. And it's, um, I can't remember it ever being like this before. Right. That just speaks to, you know, the talent there in, on the international side and that teams are really focusing on acquiring international talent. I think you look at general managers, you talk to front offices, they understand that in order to build a winning franchise, in order to help their organizations, they really have to use the internet, focus on international the same way they would on the draft, the same way they would on, you know, free agents, minor league free agency, rule five, all that. So the international signing period and you know, acquiring this kind of talent, it's important and it's showing up. I mean, these guys are are the future of the game. They're part of the future of the game. You know, these guys are, are going to be the faces of the game if they're not already. I mean, look at Fernando Tatis. He's a perfect example of that. So the top three of this list, I thought this was, this had to be the top three, like no questions asked, right? It had to be Juan Soto, which Sarah Langs went, 
Fernando Tatis, where Jim Callis went, and then you chose Ronald Acuna. You could argue for different orders. Um, how would you have ordered those three? It's not just for this year, obviously. It's for it's for future value. I probably pick Soto. I think honestly, they're all Hall of Famers. That's the thing. It's like you're you're really like you know picking nits here. They're all great. Um, how would you have looked at those three? I know you picked Acuna third, and you didn't really have a chance to get through the first two guys first. You know, I think I would have picked Juan Soto. Um, just how I've seen him develop as a hitter, what he means for the Nationals, what he means for the game. Um, this outfielder who can probably, you know, he's going to be able to move around the outfield as he grows, as, as he matures, if, if that's something the club wants to do. And he's just an exciting guy. I mean, he's another guy who I've known since he was 15 years old. And I remember back in those days, scouts would tell me, you know, this guy has an average arm. You know, he has pretty good instincts. He might be the best hitter in the class. And here's the thing. He was going to be in the running for the top international prospect in 2015. But the biggest knock on him back in those days, at least from the international scout side, was his running ability. They weren't sure if he's going to be able to, if he was going to clog the bases or if, if he was going to develop any speed or they really weren't sure about his instincts on the bases. And part of that is because there was a, for the longest period, when you scouted international guys, you would only you do the traditional workout, this traditional tryout, you know, run 60 yards, have hitting practice, have infield practice, have outfield practice, that kind of thing. But they started playing more games over the past decade or so. People start to play more games and maybe um, they didn't see Juan excel in the, in the running <laughs> parts during the game. But I think. At some point, people were just nitpicking because you could already tell he was going to be somebody. We ranked him at 22. Again, he was 15, going to be 16 when, when those rankings came out. And he just turned into a dynamic player. He's probably one of my favorite players just to watch every single day. I mean, I'm going to watch every time he comes up to bat. I tell my kids, I stop what they're doing, get them off their homework and make sure they watch <laughs> one Soto bat. Uh, that kind of guy for me. And, and so he would have been my number one. When we move on, we talk about Fernando Tatis Jr. To me, a big part of his story is that he didn't really enter pro baseball as you know the number one prospect in the land. Like He famously signed with the White Sox, and before he ever played, he got traded to the Padres. And I think for the first couple of years, people just knew him as, as the son of Fernando Tatis Sr., and then he sort of blew up. And, you know, you've got some real interesting firsthand knowledge here. You, you told us the first time you saw him when he was like 14 years old. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, looking back, did we miss something on him? Or was it really just, you know, he was too young and he didn't turn into that guy until he got older? You know, I think Fernando Tastis Jr. and maybe his father would be the only ones who were going to say they saw this coming. Because <laughs> there are 30 international scouting directors, or maybe 29, the White Sox signed him for you know, 700,000, who didn't think this was going to happen. And, and this was a scouting report on him back then. He, he was big, he was tall, but he had broad shoulders, but he was a little bit uncoordinated. He had kind of big feet. He wasn't really a good runner. Um, he had an average arm. He just had the framework. And I think this kind of goes back to the scouting and projecting and, and also getting a little bit lucky. But he wasn't the guy when he stepped on the field. Like I said, I saw him when we were 15. The first time I saw him, we were in Santo Domingo at Estadio Quisqueya. It's the famous stadium there in Santo Domingo. There was a, a, a tryout a prospect league game. And he didn't stand out. He stood out because he was Fernando Tatis Jr.'s son. I remember sitting next to 
the father in the stands, you know, asking him, hey, which one is your kid? And and he goes, oh, that, that tall, skinny one right there, go, you know, at third base. Like, OK, you know, and, and of course, he raves about his son. And then he spent the next 10 minutes telling me about some fake Twitter account. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> that took over the Internet. And he goes, please tell somebody that is not my account. You know, it's it's saying stuff. It's doing things. I'm getting all these phone calls from players. My family members are like asking me what I'm doing on social media. So what really stood out about that first time seeing Fernando Tatis Jr. was a conversation with his father and then seeing a tall, lanky kid who was coordinated but still had a lot of work to do. I mean, I'm telling you, I don't think anybody saw this coming. I mean, he's turned into this phenomenon. But, you know, all credit goes to him for all the hard work he put in, for his father, for helping him, for the, you know, the White Sox. I knew they cared about him. The Padres helped develop him. I mean, there's a lot of things that went right with Fernando Tatis Jr. And, you know, we're all kind of reaping the rewards as fans. In in some ways, I feel like it's a case where almost like the type of player that his father, the fact that his father was a big leaguer might have hurt the perception of him because like his dad was a good player, but he was also like a third baseman who was kind of slow twitch, you know, not a real athletic player. And I always kind of, I'm always fascinated by it when, 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 you know, when players turn out to be big leaguers, but big leaguers that are different than the type of big leaguers that their, their father was like, you know, like Kevin Biggio. Okay. It makes sense. He's Craig Biggio's son. And like, even like Ken Griffey Jr. You could like, it's like a natural connection in terms of like their player profile. Whereas like his profile is way different and way more dynamic than, than his father was. And I feel like maybe like scouts were like, oh, he's probably just going to end up looking like his father, who was like not exactly the most uh, athletic looking guy. And he's the farthest thing from that. You know, there's something to it. I think there's something to that. There were people are curious about the, uh, about the name and the pedigree. I think that could be a reason why maybe more people paid attention to him in the very beginning and might have passed on him because they, he wasn't ready. I mean, he was still a developing player. And that's just really accurate and true for all these young international guys. They're being scouted at 14, 15. They're signing at 16. It's really hard to project what these guys are going to be. So maybe they did see Fernando Jr. because his father, maybe what they saw, they weren't blown away with, and they passed by. They just passed them up. But the White Sox you know, have a long history on the international market, and they saw something special, and, and, and here we are. I want, to, I want to write out the rest of our top 10 here. So as I said, our, our 25 under 25 draft, which really means they're going into their age 24 season and not any older than that. So as I said, Soto, Tatis, and Acuna were the first three. Uh, Wander Franco and Luis Robert were four and five. Vlad Jr., Rafael Devers, Eloy Jimenez, Adley Rushman, and Spencer Torkelson were the rest of the top 10. And then at 11 and 12, so these are picks from Sarah Langs and Jim Callis, uh, future, hopefully near-term future teammates in Seattle, Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez. And, you know, we can't ignore the elephant in the room. It's not been a great week uh, for the Mariners. You know, some truly despicable comments by their now former CEO um, and president about so many things. Like It's so disheartening and disappointing um, for the sport. And while I think everyone's talking about service time, and that's obviously a big part of this, the part that was the most disappointing to me was the way he treated uh, the foreign players who were trying to, to speak English, you know, Japanese players and Spanish players. And one of them that he talked about was Julio Rodriguez. And and Jesse, you know him firsthand, right? Like, as far as I understand, he's actually done a really great job uh, of learning English. And he's like an outgoing personality. And he's kind of everything we should want in a young player in this sport. Is that is that what you've seen? 
That's exactly right. So Julio, I've known Julio since he was 15 years old. He's a guy who participated in uh, MLB's prospect leagues and those showcases. And uh, he was a hot, highly touted kid coming out of the Dominican Republic. And since then, we've kind of kept in touch. And one thing that really stood out is his eagerness to continue to learn, whether that means uh, learning a different language, whether that means uh, continuing his education on the field, off the field. He just has this level of maturity. It's really I haven't seen that very often from such a young teenager. Uh, I've been so impressed with Julio. Actually, I think it was two summers ago. It seems like a million years ago when we had baseball. But uh, we we had lunch here in Phoenix. We did a story for MLB.com and, and, and Pipeline. And I remember talking to him and asking him if he wanted to do the interview in English or in Spanish. And he goes, Let, let's practice English. I said, all right, let's do it in English. And uh, so that and then he ended up also doing a video segment for us all in English. And then we did the same thing in Spanish. And this kid's like 18 years old and he's doing that. So needless to say, and I think we were all I know players reached out to me, Latin players, uh, people in front offices and just uh, in the Latino community. Kind of they were texting me, really blowing me up. They were just they were hurt. They were hurt by those comments. Um, I think they were they were offended. Uh, Julio Rodriguez is someone who should be admired because uh, first and foremost, you know, he's a good kid. You know, he's a good dude. I think whatever he chooses to do and we hope his, you know, his career plays out the way we all hope it does. But he, he's a good person. He's the kind of kid you want, like your son to grow up to be like. I mean, he's that friendly. He's charismatic. He's really respectful. He all, he's funny. Uh, there's an edge to him. He's just an impressive young man. And to hear him singled out was really disappointing because uh, it, it was just offensive in a lot of ways. And, and there was definitely a reaction on the baseball side. Um, obviously, you know, Mather sets a lot of different things about business of baseball. But the really reaction that I heard more was, you know, talking about the translators and talking about Julio's English. It was just it was just poorly. It was just a poor example it was just it was just a horrible situation there and that people felt it and and i'm glad you know that was resolved and you know i actually texted with julio and he seems to be fine and he's ready to go and again that just speaks to his character that speaks to his maturity um he's moving on he has a job to do and and his goal is to play in the big leagues one day yeah i mean as as, as we said before like looking at the, the this list right here 2525 the top eight are inter- international players um from Spanish-speaking countries, if anything, we should be like, as, as a league, we should be embracing this, right? And like embracing these these international stars, and especially for all teams. You know, the Mariners have had a a rough twenty years, and if there's like two success stories of the Mariners of the last twenty years, it has been probably Ichiro Suzuki and Felix Hernandez, a player from Japan and a player from Venezuela. Right. So <laughs> to be uh, so tone deaf is to kind of like you know. Knock, knock players who are trying to communicate um, with English-speaking media is really was really troubling. And as you noted, uh, Kevin Mather resigned the next day after making those comments. Um, I'm glad that he did because those comments have no no uh, no place in the game. Before we let you go, Jesse, I want to ask you about the last player that you picked in this draft um, with the 23rd pick, which is uh, Braves outfielder Christian Pache. A lot of people are skeptical of his bat they believe in the glove but don't think he's going to hit enough um but i guess by you picking him here you believe in him can you tell me why you believe in him 
you know, I think part of that is the track record. <laughs> He's still a very young player. And I just, I, but there's a history there. Like I follow this guy when he's 15 years old, 16 years old when he signs and you definitely see the athletic ability. And one thing with my experience with these young international prospects that make it to the, uh, to the major leagues, there's just this, there's an instinct, there's a level of maturity. There's just a level of understanding that makes you believe they're going to make the adjustments. Uh, the, the natural ability is there. The athletic ability is there, but I feel like especially on offense, it's going to come around. Maybe that's just a hunch. Maybe I've just part, I've just been impressed by his defense. Maybe part of that is just by knowing the player for so long and just having some belief that his bat is going to, is going to catch up to his defense, but the tools are there. And I think he's going to get an opportunity to play. We're already talking about him competing for a center field job, you know, in Atlanta, whether he gets it or not, just to kind of be in the mix I really think he's going to he's going to prove that he belongs in the big leagues. Uh, this is an important spring for him. And we'll just see it play out. I mean, like I said, I just I just I've seen him. I know him. And I think there's something special there. So I think the Braves are evaluating him. And I think the fans are really going to enjoy or continue to enjoy seeing him play. Jesse Sanchez is an MLB.com national reporter. Uh, Jesse, we're going to let you go. I do have in front of me an article you wrote on July 2nd, 2015 about the White Sox signing Fernando Tatis Jr. And, you know, you do a little bit of scouting about his, his performance and everything, but there's a line in here that stood out to me. Scouts like Tatis Jr.'s makeup and mature attitude. And I think that has held up pretty well over, boy, almost six years. Um, so great work on that. And thanks for joining us. Uh, make sure you check out Jesse's work on our site. He's part of this draft. And, um, scouts pretty much everything for us uh, at the lower levels. Jesse, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. And we'll be right back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Matt and I will each pick a player we're really excited and seeing more about this season and finish off with our purpose pitch. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward Doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Our thanks to our friend Jesse Sanchez, MLB.com national reporter. We're going to finish off where Matt and I are each going to pick a player we're the most excited to see in 2021. Before we get to our purpose pitch, I'm going to go with Cody Bellinger. And you might think that, hey, you know, Mike, everybody knows Cody Bellinger is the rookie of the year and he won most valuable player and he's a gold glover and a silver slugger. Uh, what more could you possibly need to see out of Cody Bellinger? And the answer is, I feel like we all forgot somehow 
what happened to him <laughs> in the playoffs last year. So Cody Bellinger um, had to go undergo right shoulder surgery uh, last year because he injured his shoulder. I think he dislocated it in game seven of the NLCS while high-fiving Kike Hernandez. It's like you've always got these lists of weird injuries. Like my the one that always comes to mind for me is uh, Glenn Allen Hill was like sleepwalking his way through a glass door back in the nineties and got hurt. You know, there's there's tons of these lists everywhere. I think then Steve Sparks like blow out his shoulder trying to tear a phone book in half or something like that. That's kind of where I'm putting this. But for a power hitter, for a young power hitter, the shoulder injury is kind of a serious thing. Like it's funny to laugh about the way he did it. But, you know, he tried to play through it. He didn't actually do that much uh, in the World Series. I know he did hit a homer, but he was three for 22 in the World Series. And so he spoke to reporters today and he said he won't play defense until he's capable of making the plays and not favoring his right shoulder. But he does think that he'll be ready for opening day. Um, That's a little bit worrisome. And I just he's such like an exciting young player that I really would hate for such a, a silly thing uh, to derail him. It's not like the Dodgers can't manage if he's not full strength. They're very good. But man, shoulder injuries for power hitters. It makes me think of Matt Kemp and it makes me think of Adrian Gonzalez. And I just, I don't want that for him. So I am excited to see how he comes out of this. I had totally forgotten about the, the shoulder thing. <laughs> right. I think it, the end, I mean, the end of the World Series with, you know, the whole Justin Turner fiasco. Like, right. I think I forgot a lot. I think I just forgot about <laughs> Wait, I found the quote. I, I forgot about this. So I've got Mark Feinstein's story from the time last October. This is this is his quote. I hit Kike's shoulder a little too hard and my shoulder popped out. They had to pop it back in so I could play defense. It kind of hurt. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. We want, you know, we want our best players to be at their best, right? Like, it's really that simple. And like Cody Bellinger, when he's bright, has like one of the most majestic um, home run swings. And it's one of the more... Um, dynamic players in the game. So yeah, I want to see Cody Bellinger uh, at his best. Um, speaking of players with uh, injury, with, with injury question marks, the player I am most excited to see is Byron Buxton. Longtime listeners of this podcast know that Buxton is on the short list of um, my favorite players to watch. The problem is that he has often been injured and then, or when he's been on the field, his performance has been somewhat uneven. Um, last year, for example, was a truly bizarre season, bizarre season for, for, uh, Byron Buxton, of course, you know, um, the small sample nature of, of the uh, 60 game season, he had 135 plate appearances, two walks, 36 strikeouts, but 13 home runs, which led to a line, a weird line of 254, 267, 577. He stole only two bases despite having a sprint speed in the 99th percentile. So it's not like he's losing his speed. Um, I'm still, he's 27 years old. I'm still waiting for the one great season from Byron Buxton. I think it's possible. He's come close um, in 2017, really the only full season he's ever played. He came close to being um, a star. Um, 728 OPS with his sublime defense and 29 of 30 in stolen base attempts. So I just want to I want to see like the 99th the 90th percentile version of Byron Buxton over of over a full season. So I mean, that's that's why he's my guy. I'm so in. I, I agree with you. He's going to have that one year. I mean, there's no arguing the defense. There's no arguing the speed. He got a little more aggressive at the plate the last couple of years, and he slugged 534 over the last two seasons. Now, a slugging percentage like that for a guy with elite center field defense and elite speed, if you can just have that like one year 
where he can get out there for 150 games. Uh, that's an MVP caliber player. I, I could not agree with you more on that one. I think I remember, gosh, three or so years ago, we went to a game where the twins were in town and we just like, we stared at center field the entire time, just like hoping he would get a chance to do something cool. And I don't think he did, but that, that's like my memory of that game. Just like watching Byron Buxton from down the left field line saying, do something cool. Do something cool. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Uh, we're going to finish off with our purpose pitch. Matt and I will each pick something to rant about. I guess we already kind of ranted a little bit to start off the show, but hey, why stop there? The Mets, no, I shouldn't say the Mets. I should say the Mets players and I guess their owner on Twitter a little bit keep talking about bringing back the black uniforms. Uh, the black uniforms were worn from 1998 to 2012 and the Mets had some success there. That was like the Mike Piazza years, the Al Leiter years. They went to the World Series. I get it. Um, I never liked them that much. I think the blue and white and orange Mets uniforms, like the ones that they came into the universe with in 1962, the ones they wear now are basically perfection. Like I look at those as a classic baseball uniform in the same breath as you would look at the Dodgers or the Yankee pinstripes or the birds on the bat for the Cardinals, right? Um, They're coming up again because like Pete Alonso wants to wear them. Some of the other players have talked about it. Steve Cohen is talked about it on Twitter. So there was actually an article in The Athletic written about this and they talked to the guys who came up with them and they were like, yeah, they were basically a direct ripoff of the Raiders and the White Sox in the late 90s. And um, it was fine. It kicked off like a whole regrettable black uniform phase where like the Reds turned black and the A's and the Royals and I kind of just hated all of that and colors are better now. Anyway, I don't mind if they want to bring them back as like a Friday Night Lights sort of thing or like Every Friday night home game, you wear the black alternate. Like, that's fine. It'll sell. Really, what I don't want is to do what they did the first time, which is like even the regular home and roads started getting like the black shadows and the the black hats. No, if you can leave that alone, cool. Bring back the blacks as like a once a week thing. Awesome. I'm I'm fine with that. I just I just worry you can go too far. Clearly, I have touched on the most important issue in baseball this week. (laughs) I'm with you. I want to see the. I want to see. uh, the the black uniforms come back in that sort of setting. Um, as someone who grew up a Mets fan, the black uniforms are associated with a really good time in the franchise's history, and I think that that's why the fans are so fond of them. Um, the analogy I've always used is sort of like a song that you liked when you were a kid that you know is terrible, but because you have a positive association with it from a time or a place. Um, that like you love it anyway, even though you know objectively it's bad. And I think that those uniforms kind of hit that sweet spot. And I'm all for teams having more uniform variety, but I agree with you. I think it should be like a very specific thing because otherwise I think what ended up happening is like the players like them and they start just like, you know, you know, the starting pitcher gets to pick and like they pick it. And it was like, they basically wore the black Jersey like half the time. And I think that like, if it's like, Friday home games or something, which we've seen some teams do with like the, the baby blues, you know, where like the Royals were like, we're going to wear the, the baby blues um, on Friday home games. The Brewers do it too with like the Harvey's wall bangers, uh, old school uniforms. So I think that's, that's what I would, would hope. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, my purpose pitch for this week, and I'm going to kind of contradict what I just did with Byron Buxton. Well, it's, it's our podcast, so I can do what I want. Um <laughs> Don't give me 2020 stats for analysis of players. I don't want to hear them. It's 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 done. If you want to, you know, they're, it's they're they're anecdotal. They're good for narratives. Um, but for trying to project stats for the 2021 season and talk about the 2021 season, 
you need to you need to 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 bucket them with the 2019 season. We need to the it's not and it's not just the sample size. I think people are losing sight of the fact that it was a totally regional schedule last year. So the level of competition is totally skewed and it really is unlike anything else in any other season. So it's not just the small sample nature. It's the fact that like every team was playing wildly different comp, uh, um, competition. We've used Trevor Bauer as this example before. I'll use him again. I think Trevor Bauer is an excellent pitcher. I think he is a Cy Young contender, even in a normal year. That said, he only pitched against the central divisions last year, which included some of the worst teams in baseball. And, uh, you can't just look, take his ERA from last year at face value. So when we're talking about 2021 and getting ready for the season, please don't just cite 2020 as evidence of anything meaningful. Uh, can I love and hate something like all at the same time? I mean, listen, I agree with some of this. Like, yes, small sample. I don't care that Christian Yelich had a, a down year. Like, I understand. Javier Baez is not the worst hitter in the National League like he just was. I've got, I've got two things, though. First of all, I think we need to clarify what a stat is. Like, if you're talking about an outcome line, uh, sure. But if some rookie came up and threw 99, I don't need a huge sample size or various opinions to know that I learned something about him from being in the big leagues last year. You know what I mean? Like, you can still learn a little bit from guys you didn't know that much about. Like, that's more interesting to me than taking a guy with, like, a long track record of success and saying he's, like, a meaningfully different player. Now, I agree with you on that. The Bauer thing is uh, is bothersome to me because I hear this a lot and I, I really have to strongly disagree. Not the 193 ERA part. Obviously, he's not that good of a pitcher. He's not going to do that over the course of a full season. I really don't buy into the quality of competition thing, though. Like, I know the National League Central, excuse me, just the Central because the American League Central is there too, had um, some really lousy offenses. Like, I, I don't doubt that that's true, but I think there's just a lot of chicken and the egg here because look at how many great starting pitchers there were too, right? Like you have Bauer and Luis Castillo and Shane Bieber and Kenta Maeda and you Darvish and Kyle Hendricks. And like, I'm not going to go through everybody on all the 10 teams, uh, but there were like really, really good starting pitchers there. And I, I think part of it is, you know, mediocre hitters who were made to look worse by incredible um, pitchers. And what I'm going to go to on that is, I know it's a like sample size of one game. What did Trevor Bauer do against a very good Atlanta offense in the postseason? right? He dominated them. He shoved them down. Meanwhile, I know DeGrom pitched in the East. He got to face the Marlins literally four times in a row. <laughs> so um, I'm out on that one. I mean, overall, your point is right. But specifically, they like Bauer facing lower competition. Uh, no, because you'll get the underlying stats, the velocity, the movement, like all the stuff teams care about. That is all legit. And that that is not affected by uh, quality of competition, even though I agree, obviously, he's like a 320 ERA guy, not a 190 ERA guy. That's it. I don't, appreciate, I don't appreciate you undermining my take like that, but you make some good points. <laughs> I've only had this argument on Twitter like 1,100 times over the last couple of weeks. Anyway, that'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks again to our guest, uh, Jesse Sanchez. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or you have any suggestions, please leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.